Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Nikki, we are talking about the clear word. This is our third in a series of four. Today we're going to talk about the two doctrines of Adventism that most of the world sees as the primary definition of Adventism, the Sabbath and food. And while we know as former Adventists that these things are only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what an Adventist believes and thinks, these are the things that define them to the world primarily. So we're going to look at these in relationship to the clear word. And once again, we're using the research of Stephen Pitcher, who, by the way, I just always call him Steve because we've known him over 20 years and he's a very good friend. So forgive me if it sounds familiar, (laughs) but we know Steve well and we appreciate the way he thinks and the way he has done his research. So we are going to use the research that he has done on these subjects with the clear word. And this is in preparation for putting online his book on the clear word. But I have a question for you, Nikki. Okay. As an Adventist, did you think that you had to keep the Sabbath to be saved? This is such a great question. So if you had asked me that while I was an Adventist, I would have told you, no, you don't have to keep the Sabbath to be saved. But if you had asked me, will you lose your salvation if you give up the Sabbath? I would say yes. Aha. Dichotomy there. Yeah. Very duplicitous. The the two cannot coexist. It was a kind of a revelation to me when I thought it through and realized that if I cannot be saved by doing the right thing, I cannot be lost by doing the wrong thing. Salvation is not about what we do. It is entirely the work of God. But I didn't understand any of that as an Adventist. What were you taught about Sabbath that made you feel like you could lose your salvation if you gave it up? Well, that it was the mark of loyalty. Those who were a part of the remnant church who belonged to God, who were loyal to him as their creator and their savior. And I believed that it was going to be a really important test at the end of time. And if you don't pass that test, then you're not saved. You'll get the mark of the beast. Another interesting thing was that word test. Mm-hmm. I also learned that the Sabbath was a test of my loyalty. And Ellen White made that very clear. But the fact is, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was never a test. It was always a sign. It was a shock to me when I realized that, that, that for Israel, the Sabbath was a sign. It was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus 31 explains that it's a sign between God and Israel throughout their generations. And it was a sign they were to observe mm-hmm. as a sign of their willingness to continue in their covenant with God. But it was never a test. See, for us as Adventists, the Sabbath was a test. Like if we showed that we were loyal, then God would bless us, then God would ultimately save us. But for Israel, it was what they did because they were in covenant relationship with him. It was a sign to the nations. That's what was so surprising to me when I actually thought it through one day. (laughs) Um, It was a sign to the nations that they were to stay in their tents one day in seven, didn't matter, 
If it was hailing on the wheat harvest or if it was time for lambing season, they were to sit in their tents one day in seven and God would bless them if they honored him. So it wasn't a test, but they were going to be more successful, more prosperous, more blessed than the surrounding nations who worked for their gods 24-7, even giving up their children. And nobody would be able to say that Israel worked harder because it was clear they weren't working one in seven. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the Sabbath for Israel was really different than I was taught. Nikki, as you've been researching the Sabbath, have you come up with any Ellen White statements that helped us get that worldview? Now, I didn't always know these statements. I knew they were there, but there's a couple of them that are so profound and so horrifying. And I realize why we thought what we thought. And I wondered if you could maybe share one or two of those. So in Steve's article on the Sabbath, he shares some quotes from the Great Controversy. And in this one, Ellen White writes, the enemies of God's law, and Steve clarifies in the context, it's those who worship on Sunday, from the ministers down to the least among them have a new conception of truth and duty. Too late they see that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is the seal of the living God. Too late they see the true nature of their spurious Sabbath and the sandy foundation upon which they have been building. They find that they have been fighting against God. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth especially controverted. When the final test shall be brought to bear upon men, then the line of distinction will be drawn between those who serve God and those who serve Him not. While the observance of the false Sabbath in compliance with the law of the state, contrary to the fourth commandment, will be an avowal of allegiance to a power that is in opposition to God, the keeping of the true Sabbath in obedience to God's law is an evidence of loyalty to the Creator. While one class, by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers, receive the mark of the beast, the other, choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority, receive the seal of God. And one of the things that we hear often is people will say, when we quote Ellen White, well, you know, we don't believe everything that she writes. Right. But this is absolutely not true of Adventist doctrine and teaching. They do believe this. They do teach this. And for anyone hearing this for the first time, all of the stuff she's saying about the law of the state or the powers, she taught that a time would come when the government would make a law requiring people to worship on Sunday. Yeah. And so if you obey the law and you worship on Sunday, you get the mark of the beast. Yeah. And if you rebel against this human law and keep Sabbath, then you have the seal of God. Isn't that horrifying? She identifies the seal of God as keeping the seventh day Sabbath when Ephesians identifies the seal of God as the Holy Spirit. To me, that is so blasphemous. It's horrifying. Mm-hmm. She actually substitutes the Sabbath for the Holy Spirit and calls it the seal of God. And just by the way, um, if anybody is wanting to look up these quotes that Nikki just read, they are found on page 640 of The Great Controversy and also page 605. The two paragraphs are found on those two pages. The idea that the Sabbath is the seal of God, that Sunday keeping is the mark of the beast. Well, Nikki, how did that background information, that just 
piece of your worldview affect you when you started thinking about going to a Christian church? I really thought that if I ever left the Sabbath, it was because Satan deceived me. Yeah. And so when I started to see good reason to go to a Sunday church, Mm -hmm. and I knew that meant leaving the Adventist church, I started to wonder, am I that deceived? Because it really looks like from Galatians and from just the word of God, it looks like the Christians know something we don't know. Right? They have something we don't have, but they have the Sabbath wrong. And I felt trapped. I felt scared. I felt stuck. But then when I finally went with my husband, it was actually right after I read Galatians all the way through. And then Uh it's very clear. I know this is so subjective, but I had never experienced worship like I did that Sunday. Subjective or not, that is a valid thing. The Holy Spirit is present in a church that's truly honoring the Lord Jesus and honoring the Word of God. He is present there. And I had never, just like you explained, I had never experienced that sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in an Adventist church. It was shocking to me to walk into a Christian church and experience worship with them, experience singing, experience communion, hear the Word of God taught carefully in context, I was overwhelmed. And I knew I was in the presence of God in a way I had never been in an Adventist church. Mm -hmm. The whole issue of Sabbath and Sunday is a very confusing one when you talk to at least some of the pastors in Southern California, the Adventist pastors. Right. I remember um, my husband was having a hard time at the church that we were attending, and we spoke with a Seventh-day Adventist pastor and writer who is very well respected, and we told him, Carl wants to go to a different church. He's even talking about maybe going to one on Sunday. And he said, if your husband wants to go to another church, you go with him. And I said, even if it's on Sunday? And he said, yes. It was during a conference that he was down promoting his book. And in his book, each chapter has quotes from Ellen White. I can't tell you how confusing it was to me that he held up the writings of Ellen White and gave a blessing for me to go to a church on Sunday. Oh, Nikki, that's terrible. I mean, it it was from God that you had the blessing to go. Yeah, but it was a confusion. Yes. And then when we did finally leave Adventism and pulled our membership from our local Adventist congregation, they asked us if they could give us a farewell party and write a letter of recommendation to our new church. (laughs) And I'm like, where's the integrity in this? Because you guys quote Ellen White. It's so duplicitous and they don't want us to shed light on it, but it is. It is. And they don't renounce it and they don't repent. Right. They just say what needs to be said to the person they're speaking with at the moment. It's very interesting to me how compelling the Adventist worldview is for an Adventist. Unless a person actually understands and submits to the gospel of Jesus' finished atonement, I believe they can hold cognitive dissonance in their head, rationalize everything, and stay where they are. And it is horrifying to me, just like you said, because of the duplicity, because If you really don't believe that going to church on Sunday is going to give you the mark of the beast, as that pastor clearly couldn't have believed Mm -hmm. in order to say, go with your husband. If you really don't believe that, how dare you stand in the pulpit of an organization for which that is a core doctrine? You are representing that organization. It reminds me of the woman that we encountered just recently, Nikki. 
yeah. at another church where we were giving a presentation, and she admitted she was Adventist, and she admitted that she didn't think she would lose her salvation if she gave up the Sabbath, but she said, I go to church on Sabbath because I believe in it. Mm-hmm. And she said, I pick and choose which parts of Adventism are mine. I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. I pick and choose. Nikki, there's no integrity there. No, no, there's not. And, you know, I know this is going to sound really harsh, but to me, it's a logical conclusion. This is agnostic. This is a conviction of the unconvicted. If you feel like truth is a little different for everybody and we just kind of take what we think is real and what isn't, we don't judge anyone, then you can't possibly know truth because when you know truth, when you know the Lord Jesus, you don't let people slander him. You don't let them misuse his word. You can't just stand by and let them speak against his gospel any more than you would stand by and let someone speak against your spouse or your child. If you have the truth, you love the truth and it matters and you take a stand for it just like our apostles did. And Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. You can't know him and compromise loyalty to him. And I say that with kind of a heavy heart in a real sense. I remember listening to that woman the other night say that and thinking, I feel sad. Mm -hmm. But there is something terribly wrong with saying, I pick and choose and I stay because I believe in the Sabbath. There was no, I believe in Jesus and I will give up everything for him. But like you said, we can't stand by and allow his word or his person or his atonement be slandered. And that is why we're here examining what the clear word says about these things. Because the clear word, in spite of Adventist duplicitous talk, saying, oh no, it's not an official Bible. It's not a Seventh-day Adventist Bible. It is a paraphrase of the Bible with Ellen White's doctrines written into it. Mm -hmm. And it is sold in their Adventist book centers as a Bible and people use it and refer to it as a Bible. Now, the Adventists may not all use it as a Bible, but many do, and many read it devotionally. You will pick up the Ellen White worldview. You will pick up the Ellen White doctrines and incorporate them into your mind if you read this as a devotional work. So, that's why we're spending the time on this. It's a dangerous book, and we're going to begin today with a look at how the clear word alters the words of Scripture to support Sabbath as the Adventists teach it. Now, Nikki, is Sabbath in the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. Give us the context. Well, we first hear about God ceasing from his work at creation. And the Adventists like to say that this is when he creates the Sabbath and he gives it to all of mankind. But that language is just not there. No. We don't see God give the Sabbath to anyone until he takes Israel out of Egypt and he brings them into the desert and he tells them that he's going to provide manna for them. Yeah. They're going to gather their food for six days, but on the seventh day, he's going to provide bread from heaven and they are to rest. This is a foreshadowing of the eternal life offered to us in Christ, the bread that came down from heaven. We cease from our work when we place our faith in him and we enter into his rest. That's Hebrews 3 and 4. Yes. So that's how we interact as Christians with the Sabbath. But the Adventists have 
culturally appropriated yes. the Jewish Sabbath and they've turned it into an essential doctrine for salvation. Yes. Saying that it is for all of mankind for all of time. And you know, it is such a sinister thing because there is a loveliness about the idea of having a day off every week where you do spiritual things and you spend time with the family and you put down your electronics and you just spend downtime meditating and observing and enjoying nature. And it's a beautiful picture they paint. Mm -hmm. But the fact is the Adventist focus on the Sabbath on this side of the cross completely eclipses the one who fulfilled the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Jesus is lost. Now, I can hear an Adventist say, oh, not true, because as an Adventist, I would have said, oh, not true. And yet, I didn't trust and rest in Jesus as long as I kept that Sabbath. And I will never forget when Richard and I were studying our way out of Adventism using the Bible alone, and we became convinced that Jesus had completed the atonement, which Adventists do not teach, and that everything necessary for my salvation was done by him through his blood, that he broke death by his resurrection. And we looked at each other and said, we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. We're going to have to make our behavior match our belief. And we're going to have to break the Sabbath on purpose so that we know we're placing our faith entirely on Jesus. We can't just what if our mm -hmm. way through life and go, just in case I'll keep the Sabbath and believe in Jesus, because that's Romans 7, spiritual adultery. Mm -hmm. So the day we did that, the Sabbath that we decided to place our faith in Jesus alone in a public way, I'll never forget it. I did the laundry <laughs> just because that was work I would never have done on the Sabbath. And Richard mowed the lawn where the neighbors could see. And we did have Adventist neighbors not too far away who often drove by our house. We didn't know if they'd see or not, but it was a risk that he took and a statement of faith. And we both, at the end of the week, said to each other, this has been the most amazing week of our lives because every single day we have felt the presence of Jesus with us in a way we never did when we were looking for him on the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Yeah, it sounds cliched to people who don't understand. It really is our experience. It is. And you know what? Just by the way, it's not experience that we just invented and said, oh, this feels good for me and it works for me. It's experience that the Lord gave us to confirm mm -hmm. what we believed from His Word. When we put our weight on the words of Scripture and said, I'm going to act on this even if I don't fully feel it, that was when we felt His presence. We had to trust His Word and it can't lie. It was an amazing thing. He promised us this. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. His yoke, what is his yoke? It's what he commands us. Abide in him. Yeah. Believe in him. That's it. And you know what was so interesting about Jesus saying that? To the Jews, Jesus was a Jew. He was speaking to Jews when he said that. Their term for the law was that it was their yoke. Mm -hmm. And he said, take my yoke. Mm -hmm. So like you think of an oxen in a yoke that binds the two of them together. That is what Jesus is saying. Take my yoke. Come to me. I will give you rest. He provides the work for our salvation. We are yoked to him and we have rest in him 
It's an amazing thing. So we're going to look at some of the things that Jack Blanco has done in the clear word with the Sabbath. So Nikki, why don't we start? I mean, there's many more we could say, and for the sake of time, we can't cover everything Steve covers in his manuscripts, but you'll get the book eventually. So why don't we start with his comparison of the English Standard Version with the clear word and how he deals with Exodus 31, 16. Okay, so the English Standard Version reads, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. So we have a context, we have an audience, don't we? Absolutely. That's going to go away now. So the easy English clear word reads, the Sabbath is a day for everyone to be happy because they are part of my family. And the clear word reads, my people are to keep the Sabbath, celebrating it as a sign that they belong to me. We have just eliminated Israel. The Bible actually says, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations. And Blanco completely eliminates Israel and substitutes everyone or my people. And that's not saying what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually was saying Israel. Mm -hmm. And then... The English Standard Version says, as a covenant forever. See, the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, how does Blanco warp that in his two? He completely takes it out. Because they are part of my family. Everyone is part of my family. Or my people celebrating the Sabbath as a sign that they belong to me. Well, what's wrong with the idea that everyone is part of God's family? Well, that's not what God said. (laughs) God chose Israel for a purpose. And he tells us that we are a part of his family. We are adopted and born again when we believe in the Lord Jesus. That's right. So we've got two different people groups here that we're talking about. And that's important. important. But they need this. They need this change in order for their great controversy worldview to hold together. The changes he makes are not just, oh, I pictured Jesus walking beside me and talking to me. This is him fusing Ellen White with the Bible. Absolutely. And we read from Ellen White to start this podcast what she said about the Sabbath. It is the final test. It is the sign. It is the seal of God. Going to church on Sunday is the mark of the beast. And Jack Blanco has to put that worldview into this passage. I find what he does with Exodus 35 very interesting. The English Standard Version reads, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Then the easy English clear word, and the clear word for kids reads, He said to them, You have six days to do all your work, but the Sabbath belongs to the Lord. It's a time for rest and worship. The clear word reads, You have six days to do all your work, but the seventh day is mine. It is a holy day, a Sabbath of rest and worship. Whoever rebels and does unnecessary work that day is to be put to death. So we've got a few different things going on here, don't we? We sure do. First, he adds worship. Yes. And that is not going to be found in the Bible. No. In Exodus. No. He does that because he's trying to 
infuse Adventist culture into the text. And then he talks about unnecessary work. (laughs) You want to talk about that? Sure. Well, the Bible actually says, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Any. I mean, that's any life-saving work, any anything. And Adventists have to change that to unnecessary work because within the Adventist paradigm, any good work of saving life is considered okay to do on Sabbath. And the argument always goes, Jesus had a teaching and healing ministry. He healed people on the Sabbath. So medical workers, doctors and nurses and people in the hospital can work on Sabbath because it is a life-saving ministry. Now, that is not what the Sabbath commandment said. No. And they do try to say, well, this is because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he's taking his interpretation of the New Testament and he's placing it in the Old Testament. Yes. So basically what he does with his paraphrase from beginning to end is he just writes himself and how it applies to him into every text. As he sees it through his great controversy worldview. Yeah. What does this mean for you? Well, for you, it means that you have to worship today too. Right. It's no longer about what it meant When God said it to Israel, that's not the point. It's about them. That's an extremely good point. And what do we call that when we write ourselves into the text or read what we think it means according to our view? Well, I've heard people call it (laughs) narsegeting. I like that one. I like that one too. The real word is eisegesis instead of exegesis. Mm -hmm. But I really do like (laughs) narsegeting. Well, he does this again when um, he deals with the part of Exodus 35 that deals with lighting fires, and then Blanco adds cooking food. Now, this is really significant because of another Adventist tradition, but let's read the texts first. The English Standard Version says, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. That's pretty clear, right? Mm -hmm. No fire. The clear word says, do not go out to gather wood to make a fire to cook for yourselves that day. Well, (laughs) So so if the wood's already there, you can light the fire. Well, that would be a sort of implication that an Adventist could make, but that's not what the passage in the Bible says. See, in Adventist homes, in, in strict Adventist homes, and according to Ellen White, no cooking is to be done on the Sabbath. Now, this passage says no fire is to be built. Now, to be sure, probably Israel cooked over fires, but that is not the prohibition. The prohibition is don't light a fire. I grew up in a home where my mother took this all seriously because Ellen White said no food is to be prepared on the Sabbath. So my mother would make her lentil roast or her whatever, cottage cheese loaf or patties, and she'd make them on Friday and sometimes on Thursday. And she would, if it was a roast, I can still remember her sticking it in the oven and literally half baking it, putting it on for about half of the amount of time, enough to kind of get it to set. It's not completely done, but it's not completely raw. And then she'd stick it in the refrigerator. And then when Sabbath came, she could justify sticking it back in the oven and finishing it because that wasn't really baking. That was warming it. And if she didn't fully bake it on Friday, then she wouldn't burn it when she warmed it or wouldn't dry out when she warmed it. I mean, talk about your rationalizations. 
This is funny. I've heard of Jews who will place a water bottle under their seat in their car so that they can drive a longer distance on the Sabbath. It's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. It's a physical human rationalization to lose sight of what God was saying to Israel. Stay in your tents and don't light a fire. And the whole point was he was going to feed them and supply what they needed and be what they needed. That was the law. And all of this is related also to what Blanco does with Leviticus 24, verse 8. Now, when I realized <laughs> when I realized what the clear word said about this verse, I actually was pretty outraged. The English Standard Version says, every Sabbath day, notice that, every Sabbath day, Aaron, the high priest, shall arrange it, meaning the showbread, before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. This is Leviticus 24, distinctly saying that the high priest had a job to do on the Sabbath day. He was to set out fresh showbread every week for the Lord on the Sabbath. Now, here's what Blanco does with the clear word. Every Friday evening... (laughs) At the beginning of the Sabbath, set out fresh bread before me. This is to be done for generations to come. Now, this is a technicality, and I will grant you that there are questions that this will not answer. But from the Adventist perspective, fixing food on Friday before the Sabbath was the way to go. Just like I explained about my mother half cooking the roast on Friday, so she didn't have to fully cook it on the Sabbath. We could read every Friday evening at the beginning of the Sabbath. Now, yes, technically that is still Sabbath, right? But one could argue that as the sun is going down, right before we get fully into Sabbath, Aaron can trot into the tabernacle and put out the bread so that there's a hint that he's not working on the Sabbath. Yeah, the bread would have had to be cooked or baked exactly before that. Before that. See, with the Leviticus 24, 8, as it says in the regular version, every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it, the bread, before the Lord regularly. The bread, it doesn't tell us when it's cooked, but Aaron literally prepares it, arranges it, and sets it out on the Sabbath. But Blanco makes it so that it's sort of done and prepared in advance. And then just as the Sabbath comes, it's kind of like those Friday evening meals, we set it out and we honor the Lord with it. Completely changes the meaning, but preserves the Adventist practice. So if there's any doubt that he is twisting the clear word to support Adventist teachings on the Sabbath, I think that it can be dealt with in Romans 14. Yeah. How many of us as Adventists read Romans 14 and scratched our heads? (laughs) Right. Paul gave a very clear statement that there wasn't a particular day that we were commanded to keep in this chapter. The English Standard Version reads, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's one sentence. Go read the whole chapter. It's very clear that Paul is saying that there isn't one particular day that is the test of your loyalty to God. Oh man, that's so true. So then Blanco writes in the clear word, the same thing applies to religious festivals. One person thinks he has to keep every Jewish festival, while another thinks those days are no different from other days. About non-essentials like these, everyone needs to make up his own mind. 
He is just tweaking and twisting and adjusting the context so that you don't have to deal with a cognitive dissonance that rises up when you read the Word of God. And he does this in Colossians as well. That's right. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. The English Standard Version says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Notice that's really important too, by the way, just by the way. The festivals are yearly, the new moon is monthly, the Sabbath is weekly. He's talking about the Sabbaths in this order from ascending to descending or descending to ascending, either, you know, yearly down to weekly or weekly up to yearly, is used frequently and repeatedly in the Old Testament. These, Paul continues, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, what does Blanco do? Well, he writes in the clear word, don't let anyone control your life by giving you a set of ceremonial rules about what to eat, what to drink, and which monthly festivals or special Sabbaths to keep. All these rules about ceremonial days were given as a shadow of the reality to come, and that reality is Jesus Christ. I don't know how a person can read what Paul actually wrote and come up with what Blanco says, but Adventists have been doing this for years, and he twists it so that the Sabbath is considered a festival Sabbath. He refuses to admit it's the weekly Sabbath, yet in the context, not only of the passage in Colossians, but of the whole Old Testament, it is very clear that Paul is talking about the weekly Sabbath, and Blanco is just eliminating that. So, we in Colossians, when it says that Jesus is the substance of those shadows, that gets fleshed out for us in Hebrews, in chapters 3 and 4. And we have some examples from Hebrews chapter 4 that Steve includes in his manuscript. The English Standard Version reads, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yeah, Hebrews 4, 9. The context is not the weekly Sabbath. The context is speaking about the rest of God when one ceases from their works. That's right. There is a beautiful context. Read Hebrews 3 and 4. And look at what Jack Blanco does. So there still remains the offer of Sabbath resting God that he intends for each generation to have, of which the seventh day is a sign. There's no hint of that in the text. But I'll tell you what, it helps me understand why some Adventists will say, oh, I believe Jesus is my Sabbath rest. And I've seen it in Sabbath school lessons in various publications that the seventh day Sabbath is the sign of the rest we have in Christ. But that's never what the new covenant says. That was only true for Israel. It was a shadow of the coming rest in Christ. Now that we have Christ, we have him, and we have to let those shadows go. That's what Hebrews is all about. There's one more on the Sabbath calling that I think is worth mentioning. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, Jack Blinko can't have the Lord's day in there. He's got to change that to the Sabbath. He writes in the easy English clear word and the clear word for kids, one Sabbath, the day belonging to the Lord, I went to worship by the ocean. Suddenly the Holy Spirit came on me. I heard a voice behind me that sounded like a trumpet. And this next one out of the clear word startled me. He said, on the Sabbath of the Lord, I went to the island's rocky shore to worship. 
Suddenly the spirit took control of me and I heard a voice behind me that sounded as loud as a trumpet. Now it's disturbing that he changes the Lord's day to the Sabbath to uphold Adventist doctrines. But there was something else I saw this time that I haven't seen before. His comment, suddenly the spirit took control of me, betrays their lack of understanding of the new nature, man's new nature when he is born again and the Lord God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit come and indwell us. That's right. It's not a sudden taking control. It's not a losing ourselves. It's not what he says at all. John, born again, was worshiping in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells him. I do want to mention one other thing about that. Everybody, all the early Christians kept the Sabbath until Constantine changed the day. But the fact is that the very first earliest Christians, if they were of Gentile descent, they did not keep the Sabbath. They worshiped on what they called the eighth day or the Lord's day or the first day. And just by the way, here is a little quote written by Ignatius. This is taken from a collection of the works of the early church fathers. And this is what he said. If therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, and then he continued his sentence, the early Gentile believers worshipped on the first day or the Lord's day. They did not keep the Sabbath, contrary to what Ellen White would have you believe. Well, we can move on. There's more that the clear word has done with the Sabbath, but that is an example. And we're going to move on to the second external sign of Adventism that the world sees, and that is their food laws and their health message. Now, when you started this podcast, you called these Adventist doctrines. And it's interesting because if you talk to Christians who don't know a lot about Adventists, they think these are just lifestyle things. They don't understand these are actually doctrines that come out of their fundamental beliefs. That's right. So we see in fundamental belief number 22, which is titled Christian Behavior, we read, Along with adequate exercise and rest, we are to adopt the most healthful diet possible and abstain from the unclean foods identified in the scriptures. It's very important to realize that Adventists believe that what they eat affects their spirituality. As their president, Ted Wilson, has said, people perceive the Holy Spirit in the frontal lobes of their brains. Now, that idea is nowhere in Scripture. That idea is born out of their belief that people are only bodies. They do not have an immaterial spirit. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, they don't really know how to have him communicating with a body except in the neurons of the brain. So their belief is that they have to eat healthful foods in order to have healthy brains, in order to hear the Holy Spirit, and in order to grow spiritually. That's what's behind this. And their prophetess, Ellen White, made a food a matter of whether or not we have adequate communication with God or will be translated to heaven. That's right. And she even said that parents who feed their children butter or eggs cannot expect that their prayers for their children will rise above the ceiling of the room. It's extremely important Adventists will not tell quotes, outsiders, that fact, until they become insiders, but they do believe that what they eat is the key to their spirituality. You know, and I would add, too, that 
any insiders that get that information tend to be in more conservative areas because I didn't know Ellen White even said that as an Adventist about the butter. Yeah, that's not something that's talked about a lot. It is the more conservative areas. And to be sure, many Adventists do eat meat and drink their wine when they're not out in public where others can see them. And I will never forget running into a group of Adventist leaders at a restaurant and seeing a president of something with a literal bloody steak in front of him. It was shocking to me, to be honest. So it does happen. But the fact is, the actual doctrines say not to do that. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that a lot of the progressive Adventists will say, oh, I eat meat. I don't think it's a sin to eat meat. I just don't eat unclean meats. Right. So there's this whole Levitical concept to food that they have. Even if they don't believe it's a sin to eat meat, they don't want to be defiled by bacon. That's right. Oh, the bacon. And interestingly, I know some people who will eat bacon, but they won't eat pork or ham. Yes, I do too. I've run into that. One of the key things that we hear about Adventists is that they promote vegetarianism. And that is true. And although, like Nikki has just explained, some people do eat meat, it is not ideal. And Ellen White did say that people who eat meat will not be translated alive without seeing death when the Lord comes. And she also said that people will get diseases such as cancer from eating meat. And I know that that really affected me as I grew up. And as I even became an adult, I would agonize if I had chicken sometimes because I thought I am writing my death sentence. Mm -hmm. And yet there's nothing to indicate that out in science land. And I know people who, as Adventists, were given diagnoses of cancer various kinds of cancer. And they would look back, but but I was a vegan, but exactly. I, I didn't eat meat. Or another person I knew, it's my fault. I was drinking milk. Yeah. The Adventist Health Study, which is conducted and run at Loma Linda University School of Public Health, um, is operated by professionals who have degrees in public health. And yet, we've learned from people who actually work in the study that it is the same thing as sponsored research, that the general public who does not smoke and does not drink to drunkenness, but eats meat, has the same advantage of a few extra years of life as do Adventists from the Adventist Health Study. It's not meat that causes life to be shortened. It's the smoking. It's the ingestion of carcinogens to a degree that one gets drunk on a frequent basis that shortens life. It's not the meat. So it's interesting when I was leaving Adventism and I was studying all of this stuff and coming to terms with what the Bible actually says about food. I remember having a conversation with an Adventist pastor about this and he told me, you know why God gave meat to humans after the flood. It was because he wanted to shorten people's lives. Oh, I learned that too. He was going to shorten the lifespan of humanity because of our sin. So he gave us meat. And I remember thinking, okay, so so you're saying the Adventists have found a workaround from God's will. (laughs) Yes. That is not what the Bible ever says. God shortened human life from the pre-flood era just by his own divine fiat. The meat was never given to shorten life. In fact, the meat was given for a lot of reasons, but primarily because 
man came out of the ark into a brand new environment. He came out of the ark and needed a full complement of enzymes and vitamins that was not available when they first walked onto that post-flood earth. God gave man meat for his own health and prosperity. It's interesting to see how Blanco changes what God said to Noah about meat. In Genesis 9 verse 3, the English Standard Version says this, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And it's interesting because that doesn't just say I'm giving you clean meats. It says everything that lives, everything. Nikki, that includes the most repugnant things, <laughs> from the little grubbies in the ground, yep. to birds, to fish, to animals. God said, I'm giving you everything. It's also interesting that in the Bible, he said at the same time that he was putting the fear of man into the animals so that it was almost as if he was giving the animals a fighting chance. I mean, it, man couldn't just kill the animals for sport without a struggle but he was giving it to them for food. So what does Blanco say? So in the Easy English clear word in the clear word for kids, he writes, some animals will provide food for you and your families. So from now on, you may eat meat as well as vegetables. And in the clear word, he says, many of these animals will provide food for you. And from now on, you may eat meat as well as vegetables. So he limits the scope yeah. of the animals that can be eaten. And that's clearly not what God said to Noah. I did not realize what God said to Noah. At least it didn't sink in when I was an Adventist. And I know that the reason it didn't sink in was because I had this belief that God had given it sort of as a poison. There's this slow poison I'm going to give you, this meat, and it's going to shorten your life. That's just ridiculous. That's like finding a back gate into the Garden of Eden after God kicked him out. Yeah. Why? I don't even understand why they brag about this. It's very duplicit. It's, it's crazy making. So do you remember the first time, Colleen, that you read Mark 7, <laughs> 19? Isn't that amazing? Share it, please. So Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Yeah. What an amazing thing. I remember my jaw dropping when I read that. And that's Jesus. That's yeah. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, saying that about food. And you know what? He hasn't died yet when he said that. This is his declaration to his own disciples who were asking about the Pharisees. And it's interesting because I learned that this passage was all about oh, well, they were worrying about unwashed hands. But the fact is, yes, that may have been part of it. But the fact is that Jesus is actually saying he declared all foods clean. I've heard people argue that it's a parenthetical statement. Right. But Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and bring to mind everything that he had said to them and that he would teach them and lead them into all truth. And by the way, that parenthetical statement is not in the King James Version, but the King James Version family of manuscripts is a much more recent batch of manuscripts than the manuscripts in these translations such as the New American Standard. These are using much older 
more close to the original manuscripts, and the oldest manuscripts contain this parenthetical expression. So what does the clear word say? It says, can't you see that whatever goes into a man from the outside, like dirt from his unwashed hands, cannot make him morally unclean? It doesn't affect his relationship with God because it goes into his stomach, passes through his intestines, then out of his body. That's it. You know, even the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, adds that Jesus had declared all foods clean. He says that took care of dietary quibbling. Jesus was saying that all foods are fit to eat. Now, as an Adventist, I would have said, yeah, all foods, Uh meaning anything that's clean as listed in the Mosaic Law. But that's not the context. Remember that Jesus is talking to Jews who believed that the Levitical Law declared unclean foods. And this was in anticipation of the work he would do on the cross, the veil that would tear, that he would break down that barrier between Jew and Gentile and create a whole new man and a whole new people that would need to eat together, which we see in Galatians. And it's also interesting that one of those 12 apostles is Peter, who in Acts 10 receives that vision of the sheet from heaven, kill and eat. And yes, Adventists say, oh, that's just about Gentiles. They're clean. Don't call them unclean. But the fact is, Peter was going to have to go to Cornelius's house and stay there for several days. He would have to eat from the Gentiles' table and from the Gentiles' dishes. He would have to eat unclean food. And God was telling him, those restrictions are done. And Jesus prepared his disciples before his death for this eventuality that was going to come with the completed atonement. In one of his pastoral epistles, Paul is writing to Timothy. This is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I love this passage. And he is explaining to Timothy what is going to come along in the church. He's going to explain about how there are going to be false teachers, false prophets, and Timothy is to stay really, really grounded in what the atonement of Christ has actually accomplished. Now, here are these five verses in the English Standard Version. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, this is a complete upending of Levitical food laws for believers. Mm -hmm. And he actually names two great heresies that will come along, the forbidding of marriage and the abstinence from foods. Now, we might say, Adventists don't forbid marriage. And that is a different subject. And no, they don't overtly. But Ellen White had very restrictive things to say about marriage. That's a different subject. But the fact is, Adventists do forbid certain foods. And we see that reflected in the clear word. So Jack Blanco writes, The Holy Spirit has explicitly told us that in the last days, people will give up their faith and turn away from Christ. They will listen to deceiving spirits and end up following doctrines of demons. Some will pretend to be loyal to the truth while teaching lies. Their consciences will be as insensitive as if they had been seared with a hot iron. 
Others will say that it's wrong to marry and to eat the good things God created, which we should receive with gratitude. God created everything. Nothing should be rejected, which he has said we can eat. And we should do so by offering thanksgiving and praise. These foods not only have the approval of the word of God, but will also be blessed by him through our prayers. It's amazing how carefully he accommodates Adventist teaching in his wording. I know it. It's intentional. Oh, absolutely. Others will say it's wrong to marry and to eat the good things God created, which we should receive with gratitude. And again, Adventists will argue God didn't create pigs to be eaten. God didn't create oysters to be eaten. They completely ignore Genesis 9, where God gave Noah everything that moves for food, and Mark 7, 19, where Jesus declared all foods clean, not to mention Acts 10, where Peter receives the vision of the sheet and is sent to eat and stay with the Gentiles. Peter knew that all foods were clean, and that's why Paul admonished him and confronted him at the church in Galatia, because Peter had been eating at the table with the Gentiles, sharing food with them, and then Judaizers came from James, and suddenly he became insecure and moved away from eating with the Gentiles. And Paul came in and told him, you you live like a Gentile, and now you're pulling away from them. You know that we're not saved by works. That's right. It's a bad summary. But he confronted him. He did. And it was Peter who had received the vision who was confronted by Paul. It's fascinating to me that the people with the most direct instruction sometimes are the ones who fall the hardest into the deception. And I believe God put this in the Bible for people like us who think we know better. As a friend of mine once said, who was I to think I knew better than God and wasn't supposed to eat meat? We who know what the Bible says, we have to live by the word of God. We have to live by what Jesus said. And that includes not believing it when we hear things like Ellen White also said, like spices, caffeine, tea, coffee. These things inflame the animal passions and we must not eat them. That's nowhere in scripture. Jesus declared all foods clean. Paul says we are to eat these good things that God created to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. There is no food in the new covenant that is restricted when we know the Lord Jesus We can thank him for his provision, and we can eat with gratitude, and we can be sure that God isn't providing us stuff to shorten our lives and to kill us and to make us sick. We can eat what he gives us with joy, and we can worship him daily as long as it is called today, because we rest in the finished work of Christ. And if you haven't rested in the finished work of Christ, if you haven't recognized that you are depraved and sinful, that you can't please God in your natural state, but you need a Savior and a substitute, bow before the cross and recognize that Jesus' blood paid for your sin and that in his body, he suffered the wrath of God for your sin, your personal sin, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day to break the curse of sin that condemned you to death. Realize that he has saved you and you can trust him. You can let go of all the fear of putting meat in your mouth or of walking into a Sunday church because when you know Jesus, 
you are alive. And that is the mark of the one who has eternal life. You have his resurrection life. Trust him today. And join us next week as we continue our examination of the clear word. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music